MailChimp presents. Have you ever heard of the dreaded customer? You know, it's when marketers throw their customers into one big messy group, failing to define them by their different needs or habits. It can show up when coupon codes meant for new customers are sent out to everyone, even return customers who can't use the discount. Basically, it's a mess. If you're a marketer, Intuit MailChimp can help you personalize your marketing campaigns so that you meet customers' individual needs instead of missing them. Turn customers into customers by personalizing emails and SMS based on real-time behavior data. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. SMS is available as an add-on to U.S. paid plans only. Visit MailChimp.com for details. To do this job, you have to have a personality type that wants to get up again and prove somebody wrong. <laughs> like, that's the whole thing. Like, that's the, that's the whole thing is that you fail, and if you're a comic... The thing you want to do after you bomb is get up on stage again. Cameron Esposito is a comic who built her career from the ground up. She started in Chicago, where she essentially created an audience for her work by hosting her own comedy night. And she also founded these classes for other female comedians. Then it was pretty much time for her to be like, okay, big leagues, we're moving to Los Angeles. She and her wife, Rhea Butcher, who also happens to be a comic, moved to L.A. and rebuilt their careers and their lives. They started a weekly comedy night at the Upright Citizens Brigade. And the next step, natural, right? They landed a TV show. And then, after Cameron got the biggest break of her career, suddenly it all fell apart. The network shut down, and the future of her show was in question. She suddenly found herself in a place where she needed someone else's buy-in, quite literally. I'm Ann Friedman, and this is Going Through It, a show about how hard it can be to figure out when to quit and when to keep going. Ooh, like the first place I ever got told no that I couldn't be a performer is when I was a child and I was trying out for You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. I I was very young when somebody had a response to, like, my gender identity mm -hmm. and the fact that they wanted me. Like, I wanted to audition for Snoopy, which, by the way, is a dog. Also so a dream role. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but they were like, you can't audition for Snoopy. You have to play Peppermint Patty or something like that. I'm like, honestly, I get what you're saying about me playing Peppermint Patty. Like, I like whatever. But like, I, I do feel like more of a Snoopy in this situation. <laughs> That's how disgusting periods are. I wake up in the night and I am bleeding out of my body. A crime scene. My body is bleeding out of my body. The response to me was not initially positive. <laughs> I think that maybe nobody like me had existed in that city. Wait, the city you're talking about is Chicago, right? Like, when you started? Exactly. Uh -huh. And honestly, maybe not in stand-up yet, on a national stage either. There really weren't, like, out gay comics that were running around and not spending a lot of their act talking about how gross it is to be gay. Mm -hmm. Like, that was also a thing. 
So I didn't have a lot of shame and I wasn't I didn't make fun of myself. So, yeah, I like couldn't work anywhere for years. So how did you start getting work then? I put myself in a position of power. This is how I dealt with this. So like first thing I did was I started running a room so that I could book people. And then when I could book people, I could offer them something. So that was something that I could use to get into the scene. Like I didn't just have to stay out till 5 a.m. I could give you a thing. And then after that, I used producing my own show to get involved as a producer at another room called the Lincoln Lodge. And then I realized that I wanted there to be more women in the scene. So I started a class. You're a comedy entrepreneur. Yeah, that's actually totally true. Yeah. I always thought of it as like a small business. Yeah, yeah totally. And yep. also I get so mad when that term is applied only to like a really specific like tech archetype. Right. It's like what I'm hearing you say is yes. like there was a thing that I cared about that like the market was not responding to. Yes. And I repeatedly built it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, I built the I built the stage for them to than I could perform on. Literally, at the Lincoln Lodge, it was a stage that we actually physically erected in the back of a pancake house. Like, I literally built the stage with my hands and then took it down so people could have pancakes. So you moved to L.A. with your wife, Rhea. Were you always planning on translating your stand-up to TV? No, that's a really good question because I didn't actually know that I could ever be on TV because of who I am and how I look. I... Moved here, and I had, like, this really distinctive haircut that was uh, long on one side and really short on the other. The is side it called mullet. The, the side mullet? I was going to say, is it called the Cameron at this point? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> called... <laughs> right. Um, so not part of your plan? Uh, it was not part of my plan. I thought I was going to have to change my hair, and I, like, came here kind of just, like, well, I thought that the market was looking for a certain type of person to put on television. Mm-hmm. It turned out that, like, I kind of moved here at a really interesting time where, like, my haircut was actually... People wanted that in their show. Movies and TV wanted to appear more inclusive or be more inclusive. And so they were, like, trying to figure out cheat codes, and one of them is, like, I'm just, like, a bartender in a bunch of movies, or, like, mm-hmm. I work at... You know, or I'm like somebody's wife and they are somebody who's a little bit more on the femme spectrum. Mm -hmm. But I'm like in there to be like, yeah, but she's here too, you know? Um, (laughs) That'd be an amazing show title. Yeah. (laughs) But that was like, that was fine with me at the time because I just couldn't believe I was getting out there. I mean, I never saw somebody that like totally looked like me on TV. Yeah, but, like, you eventually, you were approached by CISO, which is a streaming network, kind of like a smaller Hulu or Netflix. How did that happen? Somebody came and took me out to lunch a bunch, and I was just like, I don't know. I mean, your network's really new, and I'm just not sure. Uh, And my wife, Rhea, and I finally decided to just, like, go for it, give it a shot, and try to develop something with them. I always figure out a way to pitch out what I think I'm not seeing. So, like, Take My Wife, which was the television show that I eventually sold, the concept was Lucy Loves Lucy. So at the time, your life looked a lot like the show that you were developing. Why did you want to make a show that was based on your life? The whole campaign was, this is the show where lesbians don't die, (laughs) because (laughs) there's a whole trend, Barrier Gaze, which Mm -hmm. is, like, that queer characters are often killed off. I think part of it is a limitation in who's historically in the writer's room. So mm-hmm. it's like a bunch of straight dudes. And then they, like, know that they want to write in a lesbian character because that's, like, 
titillating or it's like a ratings push or because they have a genuine desire to include queer people. It can be like cynical and awful or mm -hmm. it can be positive. But either way, if there's not somebody in the room to actually serve that character mm -hmm. as a writer, then I have found that people just go like, well, I guess... Yeah, like probably she's married to a man. She figures out she wants to be with a woman. It's like super tragic. That's most of the season. At the end of the season, they kiss once. Stray bullets hit both of them through a, like an open window. And then they're like one child is left alone and has to be raised by the cop that comes to solve the crime. Oh like that's, you know, like that's how it's written because they can't think about what would happen after that kiss. So CISO said yes to you, and you said yes to CISO, kind of a miracle. Did that feel huge? You know what's weird is, like, it seemed so small at the time, and I can't explain why. Like, I don't—I think maybe it was partially because CISO was new, but it was also because it was in a couple years of our being here, and we hadn't had huge failures in L.A. yet, so it just kind of felt like— whoa, I guess this is the next thing. Like, I guess the next thing is that we're just, like, making a show. But because it was a small-budget show, it also didn't fully feel like television yet. Like, Game of Thrones is also a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I've and heard they, that. And they have sets in, like, Albania and then also, you know, right. China or whatever. So it's right. like, this was one camera and a three-person art department. Mm -hmm. And Rhea and I literally, like, with our onset writer-producer, like, scratching out lines of dialogue <laughs> because the sun is setting. And we're like, we don't think we can say all of these words before the sun <laughs> sets. So, like, how do we rewrite this so that it's two lines instead of, you know, 57 or whatever? It was like camp or it was like college or something. It just felt like everybody had one unified goal. It's like a very dirty version of TV. And I really loved that about it. And maybe why it also feels so intimate or feels so, I mean, yeah. Because yeah. it was a group of people all making decisions together. That is actually pretty intimate. Right. Like it did actually feel like a family. So what happened when the show finally came out? We thought that no one was going to care about the show, so we went on vacation the day that it <laughs> debuted, which is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. It got a bunch of really positive reviews right away um, from places like Vanity Fair or IndieWire. And, I mean, we were just like, what, what, number one, what is happening? And number two, we are on vacation. We were, like, in a hot tub. <laughs> In, in, in 100 degrees. degree weather. <laughs> Going like, I don't know what to do now. So yeah, we worked the whole time we were in Palm Springs, which is fine. Yeah. Um, and we couldn't believe it. We really couldn't believe it. Mm -hmm. So were you already thinking about a second season, like there in the hot tub in Palm Springs? Like, were you going there right away? I think we were really excited about the idea of continuing. And we were, we were really excited about, like, maybe being the first hit that the network had, that CISO had, and but we also didn't know if we would get a second season. Wait, so even after all that praise for season one, I mean, what was it like while you were waiting for the season two green light? Like, what happened in that lag time? That was a really tough time. We were like, eh, this is nothing. And then we were like, this is something. And then, like, of course, <laughs> suddenly it, like, mattered to us so much. And so we were just kind of in this weird holding pattern of just trying to figure out what was going on. And so that's another weird thing about L.A. that 
in this industry that I think people don't talk about a lot is that like a lot of your your mental space and your life is kind of filled with things that don't even exist yet. And you have to talk about them as if they're real every day. And you have to feel that they're real in your heart every day. But also you have to know that they could go away tomorrow and that that isn't the end of your career. You have to try to hold on to both of those opposing views constantly. And it's very strange. It's a very strange thing because it's not like you're not going into an office. You're talking to people about like, yeah, and this is and you're using the names of the show's characters like and this is what's ca- what Cameron's going to do next. And it's all it all has to feel very real and very inevitable. But it also can be like absolutely not picked up. So you have to just like care about it so much, but be able to throw it in the trash immediately. Wow. Incentivize self-delusion. Like- yes. <laughs> Yeah. And for months, like that's what we were doing for months is talking about all these things. We eventually got the call that that they were going to pick up a second season. And then when you get the call, it's like, so we'll start then tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like not with like the... Erase the rest of your calendar. Yeah, it's just like then it's going. So I I would say that if you're somebody who struggles with anxiety, this is a tough place for that because you're kind of... You're kind of trapped in a moment of, like, I have to be ready for anything, and also I shouldn't expect anything. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of cycle. Okay, so you get the call. It's finally happening. Tell me about how season two feels different from the, like, maybe blissful naivete of season one. For season two, we came in with a lot more goals. We got a lot more money, twice our budget for season one. Mm -hmm. And what we decided to do with that was to try and work on our numbers of our percentages in terms of inclusion. So we wanted to make sure that there were uh, women, queer people, people of color, or any intersectional identity Mm -hmm. thereof um, in all aspects of production. So our show is more gay than not gay in the second season. But trying to do all of that and then also write a show, it was a bigger Mm -hmm. ship to run. And again, we didn't have experience in season one, but we had this family feeling. For season two, we had more experience, Mm -hmm. but less of a family feeling. Right. And it ended up backfiring in a bunch of different ways. I mean, everything from like writing a ton for a particular character that then we offered to an actor who had to bow out at Mm. the last minute to, like, betting on uh, certain crew members being able to fulfill certain duties because we thought we were all on the same page and then not being on the same page. We had a pretty fraught production cycle for season two. And then what we found out wasn't that, like, we were canceled but that the network itself was going to cease to exist. Mm -hmm. How did you find out? How do they tell you? Oh, it was delivered to us by our executives. Who, who, like, showed up in person? Yeah, and who are kind people that we liked, Mm -hmm. you know. And it meant also that their jobs were going away, too. So it wasn't like a, you know, again, it was a tough moment because also I was trying to figure out, like, who to even be mad at. You know, when I look back at my career and I look back at at the things that have sucked, a lot of them are either systemic issues or things that were beyond anybody's control. Mm -hmm. And things that are beyond anybody's control, what do you do with the anger that you have on that? So you were obviously, like, still angry about this when you had to go and tell the cast and crew and everyone. How did they react? So, yeah, I think everybody was pretty sad for us. (laughs) Like that's And that's almost, like, it's almost, like, (laughs) humiliating, you know? Like, I think everybody was like, 
oh, the poor sweeties that run. The, like, you want to be like this, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Hollywood mogul that doesn't give a shit about anybody, but instead like, oh, that's they'll just, be fine. Yeah, that's yeah. not my personality type. Uh-huh. We're, we're like, we love all of you, and they're like, I hope you're gonna be okay, moms. You know. Like, <laughs> so, did you guys all just pack up and go home? We still had to edit the show, which I will say is one of the like most painful just work experiences I've ever had. We didn't know if anybody would ever see season two. Mm-hmm. We, we thought there it was as likely or actually statistically probably more likely that we would finish it and it would go in the trash. It's like making the last cog in a factory that then, like, doesn't exist anymore uh-huh. or whatever. Like, that's what we were working on, and um, that was just kind of harrowing, yeah. But you didn't, you didn't consider just dropping it? We needed to get paid. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a great reason to keep going. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a job. So their expectation was that you would see it through. They were basically like, like, we're coming to tell you that we're shutting down. And also, we still expect you to deliver this regardless of, uh, you know, your personal feelings. That was kind of the expectation on their end. Well, I mean, I think it's I mean, it's it's an expectation that's dictated by a contract. Mm -hmm. You know, we were contracted to Mm -hmm. deliver. By a certain date, this number of episodes gotcha. that are edited and color corrected and, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, so, like, you just have to do it. The number of people that have folks banging down their door to give them a job in any industry, it's, it's pretty rare. I know Hollywood can seem very, um, oh, you're called into this circle of parties and it's about, like, you know, image, and it's about um, money mm-hmm. and in a way that's really extravagant. But for me, it's, uh, yeah, it's a job. And I just, I want to continue to work. Right. So yeah, you can't, can't fuck over your network. Who's going to hire you after that? <laughs> Truly. You're like, yeah, no, CISO went, CISO folded, so I moved to the desert. By the way, this is also my haircut. <laughs> Do you have any work for me? <laughs> I'm gay and I'm loud and I'm like really feminist and I like never, I never shut up and I only say exactly what I think. Uh, and also I don't complete my projects. Is that fine? Are you, did you, are you good with that? Who is banging down my door to give a shit about me? Nobody. I have to continue to create a market for myself. So you said that thing earlier about, like, Hollywood being a place where you pitch something that doesn't exist yet as if it exists. But then you went out and pitched this thing that did exist. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Did that feel better or worse? <laughs> uh, much worse. Much oh. worse. If you're a person from a marginalized community, the same things are true in this field as anywhere, which is that people look at you like you are either a charity case or like you are not universal because— the specificity of your life isn't the invisible straight white maleness that for some reason we've all decided is the default of culture. So yeah, like it is harder to sh- to sell a show. It's what made the show a success. It's why anybody wrote about the show. That's true for me as a comic, you know, like I know that when I get up on stage and say something, maybe the audience has never heard that before. That's incredible. I also have never had a stand-up special on a major network. And um, I'm a very successful stand-up comic who's Mm -hmm. been working at this for over 10 years. Chin stroke. Wonder why that is. I wonder why that is. Hmm. Interesting. Um, It's almost like one lesbian gets to get through every year. 2019 (laughs) might be my year. Your project might be really personal to you and to someone else. It is 
part of a balance sheet. Mm -hmm. And I knew that going in mentally, but I hadn't experienced it. And it's okay because that's what this is. It's a it's a business. You're literally like feeding people ideas. And if those ideas are good, you mm -hmm. know, if it's like gay people are real or like it's okay to love someone, like mm -hmm. if those are the ideas and when you're doing that, when you're putting things you actually believe in into a capitalist system, you just have to know that like they you can believe in that stuff. But once it leaves your hands, like, sorry, like that's not for you to control. You just have to let go of it because it it's not your choice. Yeah, but like, but you didn't let it go. You you kept pushing for the show. To do this job, you have to have a personality type that wants to get up again and prove somebody wrong. <laughs> like that's the whole thing. Like that's the that's the whole thing is that you fail, and if you're a comic, the thing you want to do after you bomb is get up on stage again. People often say to us, like you know. The characters reflect my life. You know, we, the, Cameron and Rhea get married and they're both wearing suits. And, mm -hmm. like, that's a thing. It's not—I haven't seen that elsewhere, and it matters. And they're not wearing suits because it's a joke, because it's like a, mm -hmm. like a stern lesbian in a white suit, like, yelling at you. And they're wearing suits because, like, that's what they're— that's what they want to wear, and there's they a whole— They look good in, yeah. There's a whole episode <laughs> about it, and they're, ch they're choosing to get married and— we hear from people all the time that that really matters to mm -hmm. them. I mean, I literally was, like, in Nashville, and somebody came up to me and asked me to, like, look through their wedding look with them and give them tips and, like, where do they get, where should they get tailoring done? And that makes it all worth it. Mm -hmm. Of course. It fucking makes it worth it. I want to talk. The whole goal is I want to talk to every lesbian about suits. So if, right. if this is the vehicle for that, great. <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't worn a suit since I was... Clark Kent for Halloween in 1989, and my teacher said I look better as Supergirl. Do I look weird? No, you look so good. Oh, you look amazing. Cameron and Rhea did find a distributor for seasons one and two of Take My Wife. They made a deal with stars and iTunes where it went to number one with no marketing budget. Cameron is still building her own stage. You can catch her doing stand-up across the country, listen to her podcast, Query, and watch her independently produced stand-up special, Rape Jokes, at CameronEsposito.com. Going Through It is an original series from MailChimp, and I'm your host, Anne Friedman. This stage is built by my producers, Eleanor Kagan, Megan Tan, Gabrielle Lewis, and Claire Tai. This episode was edited by Joel Lovell. It was scored and mixed by Hannes Brown. Thanks to my core podcast bro, Max Linsky, and everyone at Pineapple Street Media. On the next episode, what happens when you believe in the system, but the system just doesn't see you? You know, I, I tried really hard to work on the facts, tell them the legal precedents, tell them why the law that I was proposing makes a lot of sense for them. But it wasn't until I told them that I was a rape survivor that they actually looked up from their phones. Amanda Wynn walked up to Capitol Hill to pass a law that would change the lives of sexual assault survivors across America. She tells me how going through it herself would mean that other people wouldn't have to.